0: Now, as you know, this year marks 100 years since the publication of one of the greatest novels ever written, Ulysses by James Joyce. The acclaimed actor and giant of Irish theatre, Barry McGovern, has celebrated this text for over 20 years. And this year, he takes to the stage in Dublin's Peacock Theatre to read the complete text in the run-up to Bloomsday on Thursday next. He is, in fact, performing at the Peacock this morning. So I caught up with him just before he began the seventh. Marathon and asked him about his love of Ulysses and when he first read the book.
1: Well I can't remember exactly when I first read it as like from beginning to end but I remember getting a little book called The Essential James Joyce and it had portrait of the artist's young man and Dubliners in it and excerpts from Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake and I remember, in particular, reading an excerpt from the Sirens chapter, which is the chapter which deals with music, and it's set in the Ormond Hotel. Now it's sadly just gone, but <laughs> anyway, it was set there uh, in the afternoon, four o'clock on bloomers day which was the 16th of june 1904 and i remember being absolutely taken by this because i love music and it's still my favorite chapter possibly in the book and i remember just being amazed at the way he was using language unlike anything i'd seen before so sometime after that i got a copy of the book and then I dipped into it and probably, like most people, couldn't make head nor tail of the early part of it. But once I got to Leopold Bloom in chapter four, or episode four, as the Joyceans like to call it, it was plainer sailing, shall we say. I mean, some chapters are very, very difficult, but it's a fantastic. Um, Journey of just life, and Leopold Bloom, the hero or antihero, is just a very ordinary man. So basically, there's no plot in the book other than Bloom wandering around Dublin. He's an advertising canvasser. He's trying to place an ad in the paper. Stephen Dedalus, whom we meet in the opening chapter, staying out in the tower in Sandy Cove, where Joyce did stay for a week in September '04. They keep almost meeting. And in a way, it's about a father looking for a son and a son looking for a father. Because Stephen Dedalus's father is rather feckless and the relationship's very bad between them. He's not a good father to 22-year-old Stephen. 38 uh, year old Leopold Bloom, which in those days was middle aged, has no son, but he has a daughter, but he's no son. He lost a son at 11 days old and he's he's in a way he's looking. For, so it's about a father looking for son, son looking for the father. It's loosely based on Homer's Odyssey, but you don't have to know that.
0: And the way you explain it there, you make it incredibly accessible for people listening this morning who really want to try and, and read it and maybe have failed in the past. What would your advice to them be?
1: My advice would be to start with um, episode four, Leopold Bloom, because you see, episodes one, two and three are at the same time as four, five and six. So one and four about eight o'clock in the morning Two and five are about 10 o'clock, and three and six are at 11 o'clock. So if you start with me, Leopold Bloom, which is much more exciting. Like, so he's going off to buy a pork kidney, and he's bringing up um, the post to his wife, Marion, or Molly, as she's known. It, it's, it's very normal, and it's all full of interior monologue, Bloom's thoughts. This was the great thing that Joyce did. It had been done before, but never the way Joyce did it. So sometimes you're reading it, and which is narration, and which is actually the... Bloom's thoughts or indeed Stephen's thoughts in in chapters that concern him so in a way start with that and then go back because Stephen is a rather unlikable intellectual who's full of theories of philosophy and so on you know and he he is difficult to like whereas Bloom is easy to like because he's all the flaws and foibles of most of us so Mm. you know but the the great thing about the book is the style it's great writing because each chapter and there are 18 of them are all in a different style So it's just a a joy to to, to get to know bit by bit by bit. And if you give give to it, it will reward you back in full measure.
0: And you have read and reread and reread it, haven't you?
1: Well, I have. I mean, sometimes people ask me how many times you read it from cover to cover, like in one go as a book. Mm -hmm. I'm Probably about three times, maybe four. But I've dipped into it all my life, so you might dip into a favourite chapter or sometimes ones that aren't favourites just to try and get to know them better, you know. And that's been a great joy for me to discover things like the Hollow Street Hospital chapter, chapter 14, I think it is. It's, It's known as Oxen of the Sun. You see, they have all these Greek names based on the Odyssey that Joyce called the chapters Telemachus, Um, Nestor, Proteus and so on but then he cut this out so when you get the book these words aren't there but all Joyceans know them by these names so it's very hard and there's no even number if you get chapter 11 which is sirens there's no number on it or no no, um, sirens written the word you know but the sirens you see are the, 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 the girls that lured the sailors in the Odyssey to their doom. And of course, there are the two barmaids in the Ormond Hotel who are flirting with the, or the men are flirting with them. And in a way, they're flirting with the men as well, coming to the bar. So there's all overtones with the Greek mythology. But that's for later. When you get to know the book, then you can find out the Homeric parallels and enjoy it even more.
0: But if you're not a Joycean scholar, you probably would find it difficult to navigate. Why did he cut he out those I names? don't know.
1: I really don't know. Mm. I think he just, I mean, he's very cryptic <laughs> at times. I mean, on page one, for instance, you've got the famous stately plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead bearing a bowl of lather in which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. And then further down the page, you've got. You've got this. He peered sideways up and gave a long, slow whistle of call, then paused a while in rapt attention, his even white teeth glistening here and there with gold points. Chrysostomus. Two strong, shrill whistles answered through the cam. What is Chrysostomus? Now, because I at one stage was a good Catholic at a boarding school, I've heard of St. John Chrysostom, and I know it means golden mouth or golden teeth. But very few people might know that. Mm -hmm. And I only know that through accident of my past life. So it means golden mouth. This is referring to Buck Mulligan, you know, who's Mm -hmm. got this Hellenic or Greek thing about and we must create a new omphalos, a new naval centre of the earth out on the tower, you know. So... There's things like that uh, that eventually you, you realise are people's thoughts. But it's very hard to know that at first. So bit by bit by bit, you, you, you get to know it. I mean, when, when we come to Mr Leopold Bloom, it's much easier.
0: You say it's one of the funniest books
1: well, it's very funny in parts. I mean, I'm mm. going to read two bits for you now. One is Stephen in the Sandy Mount Strand episode where he's walking along the beach. Shall I do that now? Yeah, And do. then we'll come to a bit that's, uh, that is quite funny. And explain it
0: before you read about what, what, where we're at at this stage. Well,
1: um, Stephen in chapter three, or episode three, is walking along Sandy Mount Strand. He's going into town later on to the newspaper office and to meet Mulligan and Haynes, who we saw in the tower in chapter one uh, at, at a pub called The Ship at Abbey Street. So... He's just walking along the beach, thinking philosophical thoughts, and then I just think this is a lovely bit of prose, so that's why I chose it. The grainy sand had gone from under his feet. His boots trod again, a damp, crackling mast, razor shells, squeaking pebbles, that on the unnumbered pebbles' beats, wood sieved by the shipworm, lost Armada. Unwholesome sand flats waited to suck his treading soles, breathing upward sewage breath, a pocket of seaweed smouldered in sea-fire under a midden of man's ashes. He coasted them, walking warily. A porter bottle stood up, stogged to its waist in the cakey sand dough, a sentinel, isle of dreadful thirst, broken hoops on the shore, at the land a maze of dark cunning nets. Farther away chalk-scrawled back doors, And on the higher beach, a drying line with two crucified shirts. Rings end. Wigwams of brown steersmen and master mariners. Human shells.
0: It's incredibly beautiful. It's
1: beautiful writing. I know it's difficult in spots. Mind you, the way you read it really
0: adds to. Well,
1: I think a lot of Joyce, and we've we've spoken about Beckett before like this, lends itself to the human voice. There are areas of it where... It kind of you know, when you're reading it, you sort of hear it in your mind's ear. But when you have actually somebody reading it out loud or reading it out aloud, aloud yourself, I think it adds to it.
0: Before you read the next excerpt, explain to people now you are embarking on seven days, yeah, a marathon of reading. this. <clears> Why did you decide to do that, and and how are you going to do that?
1: <laughs> well, in, in in the year two thousand, I had a mad idea to do it because it was the millennium and and I I, I had this idea of doing it in a public place like the round room of the mansion house or something and people could come in for free and come and go and all the rest it was mad because there'd be chaos you have to have organisation behind you and it felt Seamus Heaney was going to open it and everything he'd agreed and lots of people were on board and it was great and spoke to the Lord Mayor at the time and as indeed I did this time but um, it just fell through because well it fell through. It fell through. And <laughs> so it, I, when it came round to the centenary of the publication this year, I thought, why not try it now? I'm not getting any younger, so I won't be able to do it in 10 years or five years to try it now. So I went to Ray Yates in the Dublin City Council, the arts officer, and he was very interested. And he went to the Abbey Theatre. And they were interested, and they offered me the Peacock. Wow. So I thought, well, I can't get better than that. I have an organisation behind me, which is terrific, because it's a, it's a great... Dublin book, it's a great Irish book, it's a great international book and to have all these coming together with Dublin City Council and our National Theatre at the Abbey is terrific. So,
0: You're going to read a second excerpt from Yeah, this is an excerpt from
1: the Cyclops episode Now it's set in the afternoon in about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, in Barney Kiernan's pub in Little Britain Street and there's a character called The Citizen sitting up there ruling the roost and he's an ardent nationalist and he's loosely based on uh, Michael Cusack, who was one of the founders of the GAA. But it's not a very fair ca- representation of him. And then there's various people. There's a character called Joe and a fella called Alf. And then there's the narrator and so on of the chapter. And little Bob Doran, who's in one of the stories in Dubliners, um, the boarding house, he's sitting up in drunk in the corner. <laughs> so it starts off with the citizen saying, referring to Bloom, who's outside. Yeah. "'What's that bloody Freemason doing?' says the citizen, prowling up and down outside. "'What's that?' says Joe. "'Here you are,' says Alf, chucking out the rhino. "'Talking about hanging. I'll show you something you never saw. Hangmen's letters. Look at here.' So he took a bundle of wisps of letters and envelopes out of his pocket. "'Are you coddin'? says I. "'Honest injun, says Alf. Read them.' So Joe took up the letters. Here are you laughing at?' says Bob Doran. So I saw there was going to be a bit of a dust. Bob's a queer chap and the porter's up on him. So, says I, just to make talk. How's Willie Murray those times, Alf? I don't know, says Alf. I saw him just now in Capel Street with Paddy Dignam. Only I was running after that. You what? Says Joe, throwing down the letters. With who? With Dignam, says Alf. Is it Paddy? Says Joe. Yes, says Alf. Why? Don't you know he's dead? Says Joe. Paddy Dignam dead, says Alf. Aye, says Joe. Should I have to see them not five minutes ago, says Alf, as plain as a pike staff. Who's dead, says Bob Doran. You saw his ghost then, says Joe, got between us and harm. What, says Alf. Good Christ, only five... What? And Willie Murray with him, the two of them there near, what do you call them, What, Dignam dead? What about Dignam, says Bob Doran. Who's talking about... Dead, says Alf. He's no more dead than you are. Maybe so, says Joe. They took the liberty of burying him this morning, anyhow. (laughs) So that's an excerpt from Cyclops, which takes in Barney Cairnard's pub, where they talk about this, that and the other. And Bloom has come in. He's looking for Martin Cunningham to arrange for the family of poor Paddy Dignam, who's died, and to to arrange something for the the widow and children, you know.
0: I know you are... Like an expert in playing Beckett, and Beckett himself loved you doing Beckett, is Joyce right up there for you? I mean, I, can you choose yourself <laughs> <laughs> between Beckett and Joyce? Is someone I'm Sometimes ask
1: this, and it's not something I ask myself. I just love them both. I mean, yeah. I love lots of other writers as well, and they're both giants of literature. I mean I mean they're like Shakespeare or Dante or mm-hmm. Beethoven or Wagner. you know they're just giants of their medium, and they only come around people like that. A few times in a century, you know, so you're dealing with like real biggies who will last forever.
0: Do you feel it's a great privilege that as an actor you have been associated with both of them?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, with Joyce, he only wrote one play, which is probably the least good of his his works, Exiles. It's very rarely done because it's kind of. It's kind of a mock Ibsen in a way, you know, and it's, it's a bit unsatisfactory. It's some wonderful stuff in it. But to have the privilege of reading his prose and, and I've recorded, you know, The Dead and I've recorded Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man and so on. So that's been, and indeed Finnegan's Wake. What am I talking about? I nearly forgot that. I have recorded Finnegan's Wake two years ago. It nearly killed me. But, <laughs> but that was a great experience and a great privilege. So, yes, of course, it's a great privilege. When you're dealing with any great work and you're part of it, it's, it's, it's wonderful.
0: And finally, I noticed during the week, Joe Humphreys in the Irish Times was talking about, you know, Joyce as a philosopher. But, like, in his own way, Leopold Bloom was a philosopher, wasn't he? He had his own views on life and the importance of love.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And, and Stephen, old Stephen Dedalus, he's, yes, he's very interested in um, in Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle and so on. But Bloom is the more, the real sort of human philosopher, like the rest of us, you know, mm. without being highfalutin about it. He's, he's very, very good on life and nationality and things like that. He's, he's, he's full of common sense, you know. It's, it's really about life and it's just wonderful writing and it's, it's, it's a story of all of us in a way, you know.
0: Well, Barry, thanks so much. It's a real treat in store for anyone who wants to go along. That's you, Barry McGovern, in The Peacock Between This and Bloomsday with details available on the Abbey Theatre website. Barry, thanks so much for coming into to us this morning. Thank you, Miriam. And that's it from us for today. Our programme was produced by the series producer Cora Ennis. Sheila Nivreel was on sound. Thanks so much for listening. Stay listening for Brendan. Until next Sunday, Slon.